Welcome to the Doubter's Guide to the Universe, questions about God, faith, and life. I'm Skip Bell, your host. The focus today is what chemistry can reveal about life and the questions of origin. Our guest today is a uh, chemist, a scientist, serving as professor of chemistry at Andrews University and who has served in the private sector in technology and other business interests in the area of his uh, field of chemistry, uh, Dr. Ryan Hayes. Welcome, Dr. Hayes. Hey, uh, well, thank you for having me. It's great to be here, Skip. Dr. Hayes' research activities include the synthesis and analysis of dendromers. Now, as a layperson, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. They're highly functional polymers with many mm-hmm. new properties for medicine materials and modern technology. He's been looking into new uses of dendromers for enhancing optical signals for the detection of various disease states and finding potentially carcinogenic molecules formed in the burning of plant-based amino acids, all kinds Mm -hmm. of interesting things. Uh, Dr. Hayes, you're interested also as uh, as your application of science moves you forward in the evidences found in your research relating to chemistry, uh, providing uh, a reflection for evidence of God's existence. The first thing I I noticed Mm -hmm. is uh, something regarding the fine-tuning of the molecules, the ratio and types of chemicals that are in the air necessary to support life. Can you share that with us? Certainly. Uh, in fact, you know, on top of the research that I do and, and the teaching, uh, I, I do like to go around and, and share how uh, our world put, is put together. And one of the easiest things to get started with for, both, uh, for people of all ages is, what are you breathing? I mean, we're, we're, we're worried about, <clears throat> you know, what we drink and what we eat, but very few of us think about what are we breathing. Now, we're worried about pollution, right? We don't Want particulates and uh, and poisons and stuff that we're breathing, but nobody really thinks about the chemical makeup of the air. And I asked this question of some of my PhD colleagues, and I get uh, a variety of answers to you know why do we have what's in the air? And one of the ones I just that can really start it off is why do we have nitrogen in the air? And could we replace it with something else? And and that led me into a an investigation of what uh, what we what do we have in the air what chemicals are in there and chemicals are not bad things to a chemist chemicals are just the different molecules uh there some are good and some are bad and they, and uh, the ones we have in our air have purpose the main constituents nitrogen and oxygen carbon dioxide and water vapor these things in the air and looking at uh what each component did in the air i call them ingredients because we can relate to ingredients better than we can to chemicals. And it, it revealed something very interesting as I looked at the ratios and the amounts and thought about uh, the air and the composition, kind of like if you're making something. And there was some really unique uh, signatures that showed up when I started to do this thinking about what's in our air. 
Oh, that's uh, that's kind of fascinating to a person to um, to consider that th uh, the air we breathe has a certain makeup uh, before life could exist or be supported. Absolutely. Uh, we, we focus on oxygen, and rightly so, because as you lose oxygen, uh, which you can do in a variety of ways, uh, your body uh, performs poorly, and then eventually, of course, you could die. And so we're very focused on oxygen, and absolutely we should. But why is oxygen 21% of our air? Why couldn't it be more? Uh, there's some scientific evidence that more could be better for us. So why is it only 21%. Why would a loving God, if there is a God out there, uh, have it only at 20%? Why is he holding back? And why why is there 78% nitrogen? Do, is there a purpose, a reason? And, and there is. And there, it's a very specific, and they're not hard to understand, but there's reasons. And all of it has to do with answering this question of what does it have to do with life? Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, is, is there... Uh some evidence regarding the chemical origins of life and how does the field of, uh, of chemistry relate uh, to that? Can life be made from non-chemicals? Talk to us about that. Oh, this is uh, definitely a hot topic and one of great interest to many scientists. And I would say this, that that question of origins is a chemistry question and needs to be addressed by chemists. And when physicists and biologists who have very little experience with chemistry try to uh, get involved in this, they sometimes don't have a good feel for how chemicals interact with each other. And so uh, the National Science Foundation, NASA, many universities uh, have uh, a number of scientists who are uh, chemists who are trying to get into this, running experiments, what do you need to have uh, in order to have life? What, what chemicals could come together? What chemical ingredients can come together? And uh, spontaneously, you know, if you mix them long enough, give it enough energy, could you create life? And uh, so it's definitely a really interesting chemistry question. And for me, looking at this, so I, I, I am a chemist. I've actually had to be in the lab and to make things. It's not easy. There are some, I've made some pretty complex molecules during my graduate school time and, uh, and, and then as a, a faculty member, we're trying to make some complex uh, nanomaterials out of these dendromers. And they are pretty complex, but they're nothing compared to the size and number of atoms of the molecules that we see in life, like enzymes and proteins and DNA <clears throat> the what what I'm dealing with is relatively simple compared to the complexity we see. So you know, so I've been looking at and addressing these questions from the, a number of ingredients, thermodynamics, which is the energy and entropy that go into making things, and it's actually been quite startling to me um, how how challenging it is from a chemical perspective uh, to generate the molecules that are needed for life and then uh, the a whole host of them and how they need to all come together at the same time. And so this is a, is a really complex question, but it's been really revealing to me that some of the more valuable, I would say uh, more interesting chemicals like uh, the photosynthetic reaction center that's in, in plants, 
that give them their green color, that collects light. Some of these really complicated uh, structures are things that had, would have needed to have been created early uh, if, if you subscribe to the uh, story of evolution and, and uh, you know, this chemical origins from non-living things. These really complex uh, materials had to be created at a very early stage or, or you know, formed somehow an early stage for a variety of reasons, which I'd be happy to go into. And we often think, well, if you give... Uh, you know, nature billions of years, of course it can make these things. Well, there really isn't a time to make uh, some of these really important chemical structures because they need to come very early in evolution in order to uh, supply the other chemical uh, means to support life. So uh, chemistry is where, where, where we need to be. It's where the answers are to see if this world's designed or not. So it's, it's like a structure that is interdependent. You, as you examine the chemistry, you have a hard time seeing how uh, life could exist unless those structures were there built together. That's right. So just to briefly uh, summarize some of the things that, uh, that, so others can realize the challenge that's there, uh, the simplest life form that we know, like bacteria, uh, they they need thousands of different chemicals, thousand like three to four thousand different chemicals. We often don't think about that. We just think, ah, oh, there's a few chemicals in there, and they come together. They're very simple. Well, that's actually a misnomer. There's nothing simple about a bacterium. They are a complex machine, nanomachines, in fact, w- with nanomachines inside of them that perform a host of functions to create uh, energy to uh, process chemicals and to get rid of waste and to move and to sense their environment. And each one of those needs pretty elaborate uh, chemical systems that come together. So three to 4,000 ingredients, we don't even cook with those kind of numbers when we make something. A cookie has 10 ingredients, you know, maybe, uh, give or take a few. And, and uh, so imagine trying to bring, a, you know, thousands of ingredients together all at the same time you can't, and some of them degrade, so you can't just let them sit there because they, they all have to happen uh, almost simultaneously um, in the current uh, time space. So that's just the bacterium. Oh, but when we think about photosynthesis, a lot of my graduate work was in understanding how uh, materials absorb light and then move electrons around to create energy, to create uh, products. So really got to understand photosynthesis at a very fundamental level, very deep level, and the number of parts that it takes to even make a photosynthetic reaction center to collect light, move it appropriately, the energy, so that you can create uh, energy in a plant, chemical energy in a plant. Uh, there are uh, hundreds of, in, in, you know, hun- multiple hundreds of chemical, unique chemical molecules that have to come together in a specific arrangement. And if you're off by picometers, just tiny amounts of spacing of these molecules, uh, the plant will cease to function uh, to have photosynthesis. And some of these really complex things that we call simple, we call natural, we call, you know, self-evident, these things just sort of happen. They are some of the most complex structures that we know of, but they had to happen first. And Mm -hmm. how is that even possible to me, you know, as a chemist, Someone who has actually gone in there and manipulated molecules, learning the rules, learning the you know what you can do and what you can't do, 
And I, this barrier to create life is so huge chemically, I don't think the, most of the world has a really good appreciation for how complex it really is. Now, I understand that uh, DNA is kind of the uh, ingredient list or story, I Absolutely. Say, of uh, life. How important is chemistry in storing that information in the DNA? Right, and that's a whole other layer on top of can you just bring the molecules together. It was hypothesized once DNA was discovered and understood and that there was these base pairs and it had this, uh, you know, ribose, uh, this phosphate backbone. And uh, as Watson and Crick and others developed the, the structure of it and they understood what it was doing and its purpose, oh, this this chemical that's in, a, in our bodies this had to be one of the first things that life had to have gotten started with. So when looking at the chemical origins, but as scientists have really understood how DNA works and how it's formed, they realized, oh, you got to have all these proteins. You got to have a whole chemical factory to make the DNA. Well, which came first, the chemical factory to make the DNA, but DNA has the instructions for the chemical factory that makes itself and repairs itself. Oh and goodness. so there's this, there's this circle, this loop uh, a chicken and egg, uh, perhaps, of which one came first, the, the instructions to build it, uh, to build the factory, or the factory to build the, the molecule that houses the instructions. So uh, it's quite a conundrum. And so scientists have actually moved away from that because they realize that seems quite impossible and have tried to uh, focus in on RNA, which is maybe a molecule that could function as both uh, partly this factory to make things, but also the information storage. And there's some real troubles that chemists and scientists are, are coming along. And so they've come up with a number of theories using RNA, but nothing's been proven. And it looks very challenging. But this idea of information is one that sort of blew my mind. It took me a while to really appreciate what do they mean information. And uh, as, I, as I contemplated the structure of DNA and the base pairs, this A, T, G, C, these four different molecules that are that build up the code inside of DNA, it took me a while to really appreciate that that, that really is a code, that really is information in there. Those, those base pairs in DNA can be arranged in any sequence. They're like magnetic letters on a magnetic board or letters on a paper. Uh, we don't, the DNA is just storing the code. Where did the code come from? Where did there are just billions and billions and trillions of ways to create code and uh, and patterns of these base pairs, and most of them are irrelevant and wouldn't make anything useful. Just like gibberish letters on a on a magnetic board or or on a piece of paper. There's so many ways to make something that doesn't produce meaningful chemicals. And yet, how did the right chemical code get in there? There's nothing about the chemistry that drives the sequence. It is literally a blank slate when we look at DNA chemically. It will not spontaneously go into any particular uh, configuration that's meaningful. The DNA is, is, is a piece of paper and that a code is written on. And it, it has been surprising to me and to many others how you can have this blank slate uh, where you can write any code you want. And somehow it, it doesn't only, the DNA doesn't only store uh, the information, but in itself 
has some chemical structure to protect it, preserve it, so it's yeah, passed along? That's right. That's super important. Uh, we get this notion that, oh, if you mutate, mutate which means just uh, mutation in DNA is just a small change in uh, one of the letters, ATGC, there's this pattern, and maybe it was AATT, and it turns into an AATG. Uh, that's called a mutation, and, and we're kind of led to believe that all mutations turn into superpowers, and something great happens. But the reality is, as we've learned in the lab, uh, most mutations are detrimental to life, and they produce, uh, they, they, they'll break the machinery, and uh, you'll create chemical proteins and things that are not functional, they don't work right. And so what's amazing when we look at the DNA, even in the simplest organism like uh, E. coli, uh, this has been one of the model organisms that has been studied, inside uh, there is a whole other system that is maintaining the code. Not only do we have the code, there is a, a series of uh, repair, there's, well actually there's detectors that go along and detect to make sure the code is correct. And if there's any mistakes, it knows where to start the repair process and when to the end of the repair process in the DNA, how to extract it out, and then put in the right code. Well, how does, how does this, you know, dumb little E. coli know inside of its DNA what went wrong? And there is these really fascinating enzymes and molecules, little nanomachines that go through and sort all this out you know, thousands of times um, per per day, um, there are there's actually mutations happening in E. coli and inside our bodies moment by moment, but they're constantly getting fixed and repaired. And that was a subject of uh, Nobel Prize in 2015, where where the um, the, the uh, accumulation of all this research on how DNA is preserved, the code. Uh, three chemists, uh, groups of chemists. Um, got the uh, Nobel Prize in 2015 for all their decades-long uh, work for revealing this. It's amazing when you start looking at it. Now, there are these chemical reactions in the living systems uh, between heat, energy, and entropy, the, the thermodynamics. Explain the thermodynamics, and if these chemical reactions can could have happened spontaneously or if they are right. spontaneous that's right so the the key word there is spontaneous as you mentioned and what does that mean it means if you just gave it enough time and you know a little boost in energy uh, could you make the chemicals that are needed for life and uh, so this is why i love teaching my class in general chemistry we actually go through the the basics of thermodynamics to understand whether you've got to put heat into a system or does heat into a chemical system or does heat come out. And then we try to understand what entropy is. And it's this all other energy on dealing with the organization of molecules. And so there's really uh, all chemical reactions fall into one of four thermodynamic categories. And they have to do with the heat coming in or out or whether you're organizing something, bringing parts together, or are the parts spreading out? And that's what we use this term entropy for. Are the molecules coming together into a group, or is this group being split up into its parts? And, uh, and so there's one category that's just super favorable, um, spontaneous, and it would easily happen. It doesn't matter what the temperature is. There's two middle categories where 
the chemical reactions happen if you if you just provide enough energy they'll they'll take off there's another category where you actually have to cool them down and then the reactions will take off and then there's this fourth category where it doesn't matter what the temperature is uh, these chemicals are not uh, spontaneously going to come together uh, they're unfavorable now you can get them to work if you use some intelligence and foresight and thought you can design a system and create uh, and, and create the or get these chemical reactions to go and as I've studied it and as looking at it and I think uh, many biochemists and others would agree that most of the chemical reactions that are needed for life and at least as you pull back and you look at the full chemical reactions that are needed they all fall into this last unfavorable category of being non-spontaneous it doesn't matter what the temperature is you can put in all the energy you want you can give it all the time you want they're not going to go. And that was quite surprising to me as I started to, you know, investigate this. I, I think this idea of thermodynamics is, is one that uh, Christians and, and others have sort of debated. They would say, look around us. We, you know, this is a highly organized world that we live in. And so uh, this, this is uh, going against entropy. Well, then the counter argument to that is, well, there's a lot of things that can overcome ener uh, entropy if you have enough energy. And both of those conversations and discussions um, are, are grounded in, in some reality, but they both actually fall short because there are these four categories. There isn't just two categories of chemical reactions. There's these four, uh, and, and that's, and that's kind of hard to get you know, a public discourse on something that's kind of complicated of these, uh, of these four categories. So, but it surprised me to note that they, life, the, the, the important chemical reactions to make DNA, to make uh, protein and RNA, uh, photosynthesis, to make these, they're, they're all, all of these chemical reactions fall into this uh, non-spontaneous uh, category. So you have to design a system to make them work. And that's what we see. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's fascinating. At the same time, it's very complex. Now, water, mm -hmm. water is all around us. I understand water is necessary for life, and yet we take it for granted. Uh, can you talk to us as a chemist about the properties of water and how that suggests uh, a gift and an offering for life from uh, an original designer. This whole issue of water and being fit for life. Oh, the water is, uh, <laughs> we could uh, talk at end uh, for, for a long time about water, and I'll try to be as brief as I can. I would say there's a number of aspects uh, when it comes to water that are really important. There is uh, the origins question of where did water come for our planet? And scientists have debated this, that maybe water came from uh, the comets. That as they came by and collided in with the early Earth, they delivered water. Well, as scientists have looked at the isotopic ratios, this is the type of hydrogen and oxygen, because there's, there's different types. Um, the water we have on Earth doesn't match the chemical signatures we see on comets. So it was, it's believed now that the most of the water we have on Earth was actually created here. It was formed on Earth from the very beginning. And uh, that's interesting because I, I think I read that uh, somewhere else, that water was here at the beginning of Earth's uh, history. 
And so, uh, so there's this origin things that's really interesting. But the properties of water are just fascinating from a chemical perspective. I'm, I'm going to say this right on the onset that I almost don't like water for one particular reason, is that um, it is so unique and it and it trains my chemicals, my chemistry students, to understand what is, um, I, you know, almost you're you're learning. When you study the properties of water, you're learning the properties of this really unique molecule that uh, has properties that are very different from all the other chemicals that are out there. So you're sort of learning about the exception rather than the rule. I'll give you an example, a very fundamental one that we all know and just sort of appreciate. When, when water freezes and it goes from the liquid state into the solid state, which, of course, happens all the time here in Michigan where I'm at, uh, ice floats. And you'd say, you know, the solid phase, it, it floats in its liquid phase. And we all just take that for granted. We just think that's the way it works. Well, it turns out that is not how chemicals behave. Uh, most chemicals, uh, when they become solid and they freeze, you cool them down into their solid form, they will actually sink in their liquid phase. And uh, there are some elements out there. I think I found uh, eight or nine elements that uh, behave like water, but they're elements. They're single elements. And they will, when they freeze, they will float in their liquid phase. But that is sort of unusual. The majority of them uh, will, uh, when you freeze, they will sink in their liquid. In fact, when I moved into compounds, which means uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a molecule that has two different types of elements or more, three or four different types of elements, when I've investigated what I could, because there's not a, t a ton of information on this, I cannot find another compound like water. Water is a compound because it's hydrogen and it has oxygen. I cannot find another compound that behaves like water where the solid phase floats on its liquid phase. In fact, I've, I've, I have a little demo that I do using, uh, it's called tertiary butyl alcohol. It's a molecule that has uh, similar melting and boiling points to water, and it has some similar behavior. It's very clear. And I can make ice cubes. I can make cubes, solid cubes of this uh, tertiary butyl alcohol. And when I put it into the liquid phase of the butyl alcohol, they, they sink. Mm -hmm. And that surprises a lot of people. But that's the normal behavior and there's just all these different properties. I can go through a number of them where water is so unique, but yet that's the property that's needed for life. Because if ice didn't float, it would sink down. It would push out a lot of life from the bottoms of the lakes and ponds, and it would kill life uh, much more quickly if it didn't float on top. And there's a bunch of other things on how it floats on top, and it preserves the, the heat and as a little cover for your ponds and lakes to kind of keep things warmer underneath. So uh, if, it, if ice didn't float, we, life would be quickly lost during the cold times, uh, any life that was in water. My goodness, it makes, it makes me approach ice skating totally differently now. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that is fascinating. That really is. Something that we observe in winter seasons, and yet it's evidence of a unique structure Mm -hmm. uh, That's correct. Interesting. Wow. Um, uh, hot water is trapped and, and holds air molecules. Uh, how? Uh, well, I said hot water. I, 
it, just water. It's just water <laughs> is is trapped on Earth, and it holds on to air molecules. This is an amazing, uh, another uh, coincidence, uh, design. When, when we've looked at other planets, this is the exploration of other planets is really telling us how not to create a world to support life. And we're, we're learning about so many details on how you create a planet with life because we see all of the negative examples out there around us, not only in our own solar system, but as we explore uh, the chemical makeup of other planets. Uh, you know, in order keeping water on a planet turns out to be a really hard thing to do. And uh, so I've been kind of pulling resources together to understand this, and it's just amazing. So water is, is literally trapped on our planet in, in, in a couple of really quick and simple ways. The, the first one is as you go up in the atmosphere, it gets colder. We, we all know that, except for the, once you get past the cold layer, it actually starts to get warmer again. But in this cold, really cold layer above us, that helps to turn water into ice, which is... Uh, can be heavier than the steam, and so then it's heavier, and so it will fall down. So it serves as kind of a, what's called a cold trap. <clears throat> but this cold trap is in the right place. It's right beneath the ozone layer, and that's critical because the ozone is blocking the ultraviolet rays, which would split water into hydrogen and oxygen, and both those things could leave our planet, especially the hydrogen part. Now, it would create oxygen, which we all think is great, and that's true, but we would lose the hydrogen part, thus never able to form uh, water again. So the, I call it like an umbrella. The ozone layer is in the right spot uh, relative to the cold trap. And though, if they were off, that would be devastating to the water on our planet, and it would just uh, we would lose uh, half of it. The other part is that we have this really strong magnetic field. And it serves to block the solar wind as it comes racing from the sun and slams into our planet. And a lot of the atmospheres of, of planets would get uh, basically flushed away from the solar wind. Unless you have a really thick atmosphere like Venus. Um, but that has its own problems. You, can't, you can have too much of a good thing and too much of an atmosphere. But we have a magnetic field that protects us. We have this cold trap. We have the ozone layer. And then something I learned recently that I had no clue was that some planets have electric fields to them that can actually split molecules and send them, as some NASA uh, scientists said, screaming off into, the, into outer space. We do not have a strong electric field. Venus does. And they think that's how Venus lost its water, was that this strong electric field. So we have to be thankful for what we have and what we don't have. And all of these things come together to preserve and hold on to water because it is critical for life. What about the uh, radioactive uh, elements? Uh, how, how, what have you discovered about how chemistry works in uh, the fine-tuning of those radioactive elements? Oh, this is fascinating. We often look at radioactive elements as the only thing that they're important for uh, when we're in these discussions is, uh, is for dating how old something is. Well, that's not true, and we kind of know that if we back up and go, oh, yeah, radioactivity. Yeah, we use those, uh, those elements for weapons and, and for creating, oh, for creating energy in, in nuclear reactors. And, and then if we back up a little more, we say, oh, yeah, medicine uses these to, uh, elements as tracers to detect disease and sometimes to treat it. 
Um, but we also know radioactivity is very dangerous. Marie Curie, who helped, uh, helped uh, the world to understand more about this, ended up dying from the complications of handling and being too close to radioactive elements. And so uh, why, does, why is our world full of these radioactive elements? Why are they there? And I think there's an, an important element design that, uh, that speaks to me. And one of them is that radioactive elements actually produce heat. And they provide the necessary heat within our uh, crust, within our mantle, within our, you know, in the ground below us to create enough heat uh, to help the plate tectonic, uh, you know, uh, process to take place. I, I think it may be important in helping to create the, the magnetic field. They help, it helps keep the planet warm. And which allows this big iron ball in the middle to rotate and create the magnetic field through this dynamo effect. And so the radioactive elements play an important role in providing heat in the crust. And what's critical about that is that radioactive elements are so uh, amazing at producing heat, they can produce just so much heat uh, relative to uh, a combustion process, just like burning, like the gasoline in your car. When you burn that, you can get so, you know, only so much energy out of it. But radioactive elements, you get about a million to 10 million times the amount of energy per pound or per gram than you would from burning something. So there's a tremendous amount of heat without all the mass. And that's important because you got to get the gravity just right on planet Earth in order to hold on to hydrogen, uh, oxygen and nitrogen uh, and then let certain small molecules go like hydrogen helium. Those go whipping off into space. So there's a gravity issue. There's a heating issue. And then if you get too much radioactive elements, then that's detrimental to life. That will destroy life. So there's this fine-tuning balance that I see there. You know, uh, as I've listened to you, uh, there's a question which kind of offers a uh, contrast summary. Uh, I'm imagining a chemical system that happens by chance, how that would look different from a chemical system that is designed. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, all you have to do uh, in terms of a uh, well, in terms of a large chem set of chemical systems is to look at different planets. And we, when we look and we see, uh, we see what's around us, we can see what, what, what that looks like. I would say in our kitchens, we often explore chemical systems um, that are designed and, and uh, things that work and things that fail. And uh, failure uh, comes from not following the recipe. Um, where there's the right ratios and the right ingredients. And, you know, I have to admit, I actually failed making cookies one time. Um, and not because I didn't follow, well, I didn't follow the directions very well. Uh, I had all the right ingredients. And I said, well, I'm just going to, uh, it was like an oatmeal raisin cookie kind of thing. And I, and I threw them together, all the ingredients, the wet and the dry ones. And I got the, um, the mixing off. You're supposed to mix the dry and then mix the wet. And then put it together, and especially when you got oats in there, it, uh, it has a chemical challenge to really get it all mixed. Oh, it was terrible. We'd have bites of sugar, bites of, which was good, and then bites of uh, baking soda. So it's we it's actually easy to fail at a chemical system. It's just that we're always following recipes, and a lot of it's already worked out for us, so we don't actually see all the failures uh, that happen because we're we're sitting in an exceptional place with so many. Uh, working chemical systems around us.
Uh, now, <laughs> Dr. Hayes, kind of in, in summary, how does um, the field of, chem of chemistry, the, this science of chemical cycles, uh, support evidence for the notion of design? Can you, can you kind of tell us how, in your perspective as a scientist, the notion of design is supported by your study of chemistry? Yeah, this is very um, important. In fact, it, it sort of shocked a number of people when, when, I, when I talk about them, about how uh, a cycle, you know, not only just do we have all these, you know, the chemicals in the, in the right order in our planet, you, they're constantly being used up. And so you have to have a system of, of remaking the chemicals that are needed. Uh, let's talk about nitrogen, for, for instance. A lot of living systems make uh, and use the nitrogen from the air. But there's this whole chemical system of, of bacteria that help to fix or utilize the nitrogen in the air, which is really hard to do. And they transform it into something usable. We use it. We, you know, animals use it. And then when we're done with it, it gets deposited, you know, eventually in the ground. And then there's other organisms that reform the nitrogen back into the nitrogen into the air. And so there's this complete cycle. Well, there's not just a cycle for nitrogen. There's, there's for carbon and for oxygen, which a lot, many of us know from the carbon dioxide and oxygen uh, cycle. But uh, if you don't have a way to move the chemicals through this cycle, the system shuts down. You cannot have life. So you can't just have reactions that use up chemicals into a certain form. You have to have other ones that bring it back. This is a very hard thing to come about naturally or spontaneously. But if you um, think about it and you put in some thoughts, you can design a system that will um, regenerate the chemicals that you need. And this is going on all around us for uh, tens, you know, 20, 30, 40 different elements at least, uh, where all these uh, elements are undergoing chemical cycles mainly by invisible things called bacteria and enzymes. And you cannot just have these things um, thrown together. And so I just see such a, a design, a, like someone had to think about all of the parts to, that came together uh, in order for all of these cycles to happen in nature. And so uh, and when you put that on top of what I see in the ingredients in the air, and on top of um, the, the specific and specified complexity that's in DNA, that's in photosynthesis, that's in, um, you know, the, the, the chemicals that come together for life. And that there's just not enough time, energy, and chance to make these things happen. We've been uh, listening, folk, with uh, Dr. Ryan Hayes. And friends engaged in the conversation by listening uh, is fascinating. Maybe uh, some of you are inspired to read further, Dr. Ryan Hayes. Uh, in the science of chemistry, uh, it's, it's interesting to think of how our world comes together and uh, it's fascinating. So Ryan, thank you for joining us today. Oh, so excited to be here. And to be able to just share a small glimpse of what I've seen uh, in terms of design. So I appreciate being here. Thank you, Skip. It's been challenging and leads us to further study. Uh, it's, it's amazing. 
Uh, thank you for your contribution, Ryan, and uh, everyone, lis listener, uh, thank you for joining us. Until next time, keep thinking, keep asking. <laughs>